Um, this is the third segment and final segment, period 8-2 notes. So if you haven't listened to the first or second one, I uh, encourage you to do so. This one will deal exclusively with the culture of the 50s. So that's, you know, point E. So, you know, flip over to the back pages where it says popular culture in the 50s. Here we go. What I find really interesting in the age um, of competing with the Soviet Union, you know, a nation that, you know, expresses um, the values of Marxism, right? The underlying uh, tendency for Marxist or socialist regimes is conformity, right? Everyone gets the same, and it's kind of boring, and there's no diversity, and, you know, at least with Stalin and the Soviet Union, there's a repression of any form of diversity, because that's a window of challenging his supremacy in his country, right? I find that very interesting because the United States is com the complete opposite of that, or at least on paper. And during this time when we're fighting against the Reds, a socialistic nation, Soviets, that are hell-bent on conformity, we ourselves begin to conform to fight against them. This is a this is a this is a, a decade where diversity is not celebrated, right? So I always find it very interesting and ironic that the country that preaches diversity is in fact conforming. And if you look at how people are living during this time, the suburban lifestyle, right? Even the homes look the same. In fact, they're literally structured the same way because they've been mass produced quickly. So it's an interesting thing that you should start to note with that. And of course, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to inform our culture, one of which is uh, consumerism that will be helped brought about by the invention of the television. By 1961, there will be 55 million TV sets, one for every 3.3 Americans. This is going to be huge in the fact that all television programs will be dominated by three national networks only. So you get, you know, even and this goes for today. I'm not going to say three, but you only have a few that are really determining the amount of information that people are receiving. Now, I know the Internet kind of breaks that up, so that's that's one good thing about the Internet, but... During this time, that anyone living around the 50s, is, this is a TV-watching culture. And in previous segments of the other parts of the uh, lecture notes, I've mentioned how Nixon utilized uh, television to, you know, uh, avoid political scrutiny in his checker speech. So, you know, we see the politicians begin to use it, but also we begin to see corporations use it and people that are selling things. And this leads to advertising, which was around since the 1920s. But now it's going to become even more aggressive and focused more on, quote, branding than on the product itself. So, for example, they're going to be focusing on name recognition, Pepsi, right, Sprite, uh, Coca-Cola. These are names that we know, we trust. And the idea is that if we can get large populations to somehow believe that the name is more uh, worthy of trust or there's, you know, the name comes with quality – and people are not going to buy, you know, cheaper knockoffs. Now, some of us are smarter than that, and we understand it's the same thing. But branding has a, a very, very big influence on mainstream Americans during this time. And we still have this today, right? Apple, these iconic brands. But like the 1920s, with the increase of advertisement, this is going to proliferate, right? And encourage aggressive spending. And that's what kind of... You know, that, that's kind of what continues our capitalistic economy from running. 
right? Think of spending like water, you know, you need the river to kind of flow constantly and you need people to spend and buy things and, you know, of course have wages, but also spend. So the plastic credit card is introduced. Again, we had credit in the 1920s, but now it's becoming a lot easier, right? It's accessible to a lot of people now. We're also having the idea that fast food chains and other franchises will become popular and, and also kind of take advantage of the new advertising boom that's happening with the proliferation of the television set. I have to say, though, unlike, you know, our smartphones, paperback books and records are actually going to be a national phenomenon. So, you know, we tend to think technology is going to lead to a decrease in literacy, not so much the case here. By 1960, a million copies will be sold a day. What's the impact? Well, now you have these experts, right? These authors making money off of their ideas. So anything ranging from, you know, how to raise children, right? To modern psychology, to, you know, uh, different cultures, you know. This is it's going to be very big and powerful and popular during the time period. So, you know, we have the proliferation of ideas aided by, again, technology such as television, and kind of supported by the advertisement campaigns. We're also going to have blues and rock and roll that can become more marketable and accessible to the majority of Americans. And I have to be very blunt with you when I mean more marketable. I mean more white, right? We know that the black community, historically, uh, you know, were one step ahead of everybody else in terms of music and entertainment, especially with blues and rock and roll, ones in which they have created they were seeing blues and rock and roll as low-class, um, dangerous music. Not only for the lyrics, but because of the actual, you know, the, the, the way the sequence of the music goes. It's not as, you know, organized, so to speak, or, you know, structured. And this goes with jazz, but jazz also follows the same fate, right? At some point white audiences are going to want to listen to that, young white audiences. So jazz music for the young people in the 20s and, and 50s will also be for the blues and rock and roll. It's going to be more marketable. So the best person I can think of will be Elvis Presley, which is famous. You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog was actually, um, you know, taken from a black artist named Big Mama Thornton. Her, her actual original uh, song, I find, to be a lot better, more raw, but you can understand how the polished version of, you know, Elvis is going to be more marketable and accessible to people. This will, of course, have heavy influence on youth culture, which can lead to challenging, you know, traditional norms. You can see the difference between the 60s and the 50s is you had Elvis Presley challenging traditional norms by, you know, gyrating his hips and shaking. But again, for the most part, you know, it's not going to turn into political activism. We're going to see the influence of how rock and roll has on social activism and politics later on in the 60s. I want to talk about briefly about corporate America because that's not only the culture that's kind of conforming uh, in the homes in suburbia, right? But also in corporations. Conglomerates are going to diversify into other industries than manufacturing. So in other words, we're not going to have our just our steel mills like we see in the 1890s or 1870s even. We're going to have other industries for example, like, like the best way I can explain is like, uh, you know, what we see in the office, like the TV show. Was it Dunder Mifflin? The idea of making paper, which is hilarious to me. But these are other corporations that are going to make uh, things for people, right? That will 
um, feed or appeal or support a growing diversification of jobs. So I want you to get away from the fact that we're just producing steel or, you know, we're, 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 we're making cars, right? Those are the two biggest ones. But other industries are coming around um, that are going to kind of create what we call white-collar jobs and blue-collar jobs. Again, white-collar meaning, you know, uh, management for, for, the, for the, what they wear to work and blue-collar being, you know, with an association with the working class, people are doing things. And the first time for history, more Americans will hold white-collar jobs. So more people are going to be teachers, doctors, lawyers, uh, managers, middle managers than actual people on the job. A lot of the large corporations, because they're getting bigger, they're going to have to rely more on conformity and teamwork to achieve their ends. However, not everyone's going to appreciate this. People like William White are going to investigate this, and they're going to question corporate culture as it will lead to a loss of individuality. And he's going to publish his work in a, a piece called The Organized Man, 1956. So again, kind of like what you see in the office. I mean, the office is kind of like a satire on this, but you know, with a lot of paperwork and the introduction of cubicles, right? And even if you know, there are policies in place, they're kind of like slapped down toward you. And you know, you have a you have a bell eight to eight nine to five, right, or eight to four, whatever. And this idea is that you, you go in, you do your one job, you have very limited communication, and you make make sure you kind of are a cog in the machine. And a lot of people are going to start to question that, at least the academics. Not only corporations, but unions are going to kind of be uh, conforming to this time period. They can become more prolific and influential, especially when the American Federation of Labor and the Congress uh, Industrial Organization is going to unite and merge in 1955. They're going to become more conservative unions, which is interesting because they've been longstandingly known as a threat to democracy. If you remember all the way all the way back in the 1880s, you know, things like the Haymarket riots, or if you want to go further back, like the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, or the Pullman Strike of 1893, they all ended pretty badly, right? We ended up with the government in some level intervening, right? Either calling the federal troops or having court injunctions, ordering them to stop. Now we have these unions becoming kind of cooperative within the channels of democracy. They're powerful enough, and they kind of become political parties in of themselves. And a lot of these blue-collar workers are going to enjoy middle-class income. So there's no reason really to push for some of the more liberal, progressive uh, re you know, reform agendas that they had in the 1930s or even going back from the 1920s, 1900s. Um, you know, we see laws that you should kind of remember to kind of signal the evolution of unions, one in which is the Clayton Antitrust Act, right, which barred unions from being, you know, held accountable under that law. And then we have the Wagner Act and the NIRA during Wilson's New Deal program. And then we also have the cooperation that we've had, general cooperation of World War II and the production, uh, war production. So, you know, we're beginning to see that unions are going to become a staple um, in our culture, and they're going to be associated with conformity as well as uh, prosperity, especially with pensions and some of the rights that they will achieve. Religion also, interestingly enough, are going to expand and they're going to become way more tolerant of modernism than before. If you remember, in 1920s, a lot of uh, Christians 
Protestants are going to splinter off into what we we call fundamentalists. Fundamentalists are people that you know have a strict interpretation of the Bible, and the best you know example of fundamentalists, right? People that are reading the Bible literally and modernists is in the Monkey Scopes trial in Tennessee, which is a court case that involved you know whether or not the Tennessee school district would allow the teaching of evolution as something worthy and valuable, as opposed to creationism, right? Because theory of evolution kind of goes against, or at least to some of the fundamentalists, challenges the implicit notion that mankind was created directly by God. The fact that you have this, you know, guy Charles Darwin that's creating this theory, suggesting that, you know, we descended from some other creature. To these fundamentalists question the power and authority of God. But we're not getting that right now in the 50s. A lot of these religious institutions are going to be, interestingly enough, a source of individual identity and highlight this socialization in a public forum. This is a place where everyone can meet on every Sunday. And this, and this goes to the black community as well. And I mentioned in my previous lecture that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference is going to form in the South, and they're going to basically be one of the harbingers of the civil rights movement. They're going to be the ones who are going to charge and give it some moral ethos and what's going to help organize these people. So religion also plays an aspect. I have to be honest with you, though, a lot of people during this time, they're going to celebrate religion for also reasons that are obvious. We're fighting against Russia and the Soviets. Marxism, if you remember, is an ideology that is hell-bent on overthrowing oppressions, system, systems of oppression, and that also includes religion. So there's a tendency to, you know, associate atheism with Marxism. So this idea of, you know, really celebrating religion is going to be found during this time. In fact, our Pledge of Allegiance, uh, we're going to put under God in that after. We have a tendency to think that the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, was under God has been there forever, but we're really going to showcase our religious... Um, diversity during this time as a way to check, you know, as a way to show the world that we're different from the Reds. Women's roles, um, it's going to be very important here to change too. I wouldn't even say it's a progressive change. I would say it's a rollback because we had a brief period in the 1920s, even the early 1900s, with the progressives such as Alice Paul right, and Jane Addams. These are suffragettes that helped push state governments to pass uh, amendments within their constitutions or laws to promote suffrage, and eventually one federal passage of the 19th Amendment, right? They're also going to push for liberalized divorce laws. In other words, make it easier for women to divorce. And we even have people in the 1920s like Margaret Sanger that's going to promote something as revolutionarily as birth control. The idea of, you know, making sure that women are in charge of their bodies instead of their fathers or their husbands. In the 1930s, we're going to have a kind of uh, you know, a phasing out of this type of progressive, you know, wave for women's rights because of the Depression. 1940s, women are going to be valued again by, you know, asking to join the workforce as the boys are going to be fighting against the Nazis and the Japanese. But then in the 50s, interestingly enough, they're going to go and revert back to traditional gender roles that we've seen in the Victorian era, in the late 1800s, and 1900s even, right? And of course, the baby boom is going to encourage a lot of these women to return to homemaking role in society. Plus, the economic prosperity of one's salary is going to justify only one per people, one person, right, working. And it makes economic sense, right? You you eliminate half the population from competing with jobs. Every man in this country uh, might get a share, right? 
I get a piece of the pie at the expense of, you know, these women. So despite the prosperity, many of these women are going to quietly report feelings of frustration, boredom, and hopelessness in suburban life. Why? Well, you have 8 a.m., right? Imagine this. 8 a.m., you're sending your kids to school. They're gone. And from 8 to 5 or 8 to 3, at least when the kids come back, you have about maybe an hour of chores. Why? Well, because before, you know, the invention of the vacuum cleaner or the iron or any of these kitchen appliances or any other household appliances, you know, cleaning a house could take hours. Now it's a matter of an hour, maybe two hours. And then by 10 o'clock, you've got silence. Of course, you got neighbors, other women, I'm sure, that you can talk to, but you know how, how people are. People are going to be afraid that other people will talk and gossip. So these women are going to be very quiet about these feelings. And they're going to be frustrated and bored and hopeless, and they're not going to be able to pin it on anything, right? Because their fathers have told them that this is how it should be. Their mothers told them this is how they should be. When they get married, they have a husband that tells them this is how it should be. Everyone's telling them this is the way it should be, that you should be happy. So if you have everybody telling you you're ha- you should be happy and you're frustrated, you might start to question why you're frustrated. So you can imagine the psychological turmoil that many of these women had during this time. The reason why I mention this is because someone like Betty Friedan will investigate this phenomenon further by interviewing a series of these women. And she's going to publish her findings in a book called The Feminine Mystique. Now these findings will justify the launching of the sexual revolution that we'll see in the 60s. Right, wrong, or indifferent, I'm not telling you to support this movement, but you can understand why these women are now going to kind of be a little bit critical of the institution of marriage. To some of these women, marriage is going to be a way in which you can kind of shackle or chain them to domesticity, right? Not giving them the ability to work or having the option at the very least, you know? So this is some of the things that women are going to start to think about. And it's not going to really kind of ferment and evolve until the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We'll talk about that later. I have to tell you, despite the conformity, there will be tons of social critics. However, there are just a handful of intellectuals. And of course, they're going to get some critical acclaim, but for the most part, you know, due to the, the minority of their population, it's not going to be, it's not going to have a real big impact on major society. But they're worthy of mention. One of which is a man named David Reisman. He's a Harvard sociologist. He's going to write a book called The Lonely Crowd. He's going to notice or kind of comment that this, there's a societal trend going on, shifting from inner-directed individuals to other-directed conformists. In other, in other words... Instead of talking about, you know, uh, the, the, the prospect of individuality and celebrating that, we're going to kind of emphasize to be more conformist and we're going to kind of point the finger at people who kind of, you know, go out or deviate from the mold, so to speak. He's going to call it the lonely crowd, right? There's a loneliness there. If everyone's conforming, then, you know, there's nothing to contrast it with kind of boring and if everyone has these feelings that they want to express but they can't because of fear of scrutiny by other people you're going to kind of have this weird uptight passive aggressive um culture you know i mean it's it's going to be polite it's going to be nice to some people i'm not saying everyone's going to feel this way some people are going to be totally fine but other people are going to kind of feel lonely as evident by his book Another person is going to be a man named Jonathan Kenneth Galebright. He's a brilliant professor. He's going to be also in Harvard. He's going to be um, very instrumental in the Truman um, and the Kennedy and 
Johnson administrations. He's a you could think of him as a liberal New Dealer intellect. He's an economist. He's going to write the affluent society. He's going to write about the failure of wealthy Americans to address the need for increased social spending for the common good. So he's going to say during this time of economic prosperity, it's going to delegitimize, right, or discredit some of the the, the, the progress that was made by the New Deal in the 1930s, right? Because by the 1930s, there was an understanding, even by wealthy people, that spending Social spending for the common good will, you know, boost the market, will boost the economy as a whole, and it'll end up benefiting them. But now everyone is entitled, or it's seemingly so entitled, to a suburban home. A lot of these people and, you know, the upper echelons of society are going to start to question the legitimacy of social spending. And we're not we're going to see this reach a height, um, you know, with a conservative backlash. And we'll talk about that later in the 70s and 80s. The next one that we're going to talk about is you probably already read in sophomore year by a man named J.D. Salinger in his classic tale of Catcher in the Rye, 1951. In this one, he's going to really showcase the struggles of individuality against conformity with his famous character, uh, Holden Caulfield, as you know, who is a young person like you that rejects, you know, the school that he's in. He's constantly smoking, he's experimenting, uh, and in interacting with, you know, undesirable people. I think there's a scene where he has having a conversation with a prostitute. Yet, you know, in his struggle for individuality, he wants to, you know, protect innocence. So in this kind of, you know, broader cultural context, you can see why we teach Catcher in the Rye. And of course, the last one I want to talk about is Joseph Heller, who wrote a really interesting and hilarious book called 1961. It's a satire on the stupidity of the military and war. I mean, this coincides with the military-industrial complex that's growing and the arms race. And he kind of makes a joke about how we can, you know, one day might, you know, blow each other up. I guess humor is a way to kind of dumb or dull the pain of reality. The last thing I would like to talk about, and these are also social critics, but they're not intellectuals. These are the young people of this generation. Right? I guess you can say they're also writers and intellectuals, but this is going to be characterized mostly as a youthful movement. You could see this as a precursor to the hippie hippies in the 1960s. And these writers, very similar to the lost generation right in the 1920s, people like Ernest Hemingway, they're going to start questioning traditional you know, norms in society. In this, in this case, the beatniks, they're going to advocate the use of drugs, and they're going to advocate for you know, deviant lifestyles. Two of the leaders, in fact, are, you know, you know, someone I comes to mind is a man named Jack Kerouac. He wrote On the Road in 1957. And Allen Ginsberg, who's going to write Howl in 1956. And the reason why they're called beatniks is because the, you know, the there's an association with, you know, the style of the clothes that they would wear and the, you know, the beating of the bongos. There's an, you know, the revival of jazz or the, you know, because jazz historically has been underground genre for, uh, you know, counterculture. And these people are going to kind of uh, resurrect it. I have to say the beatniks are largely going to be a white liberal, um, you know, mid upper middle class movement. Uh, but black people are going to also enjoy their own kind of spiritual or, uh, you know, cultural rebelliousness in their own way. Very similar to the beatniks. So these are some of the things that you should keep in mind. 
then in the age of conformity, there are some people that are going to start to question it, but we're not going to have an explosion of rebellion, not until the 1960s and the mid-1960s, and we'll talk about that later.